This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. You know, despite the increase in COVID-19 cases in this second wave right across the country, uh, visiting a long-term care home really depends on kind of which province you actually live in. The rules seem to vary widely, sometimes even depending on which particular care home you might want to go to. Some of them only allow visitors who are deemed essential Others find a way to make it work and seem to be more lenient. So we wanted to talk about the complexity of all of this and really the impact it is having on the mental health and well-being of the people who are in those long-term care homes. Joining us now is Dr. Samir Sinha, who's a director of geriatrics at Sinai Health System and the University Health Network in Toronto. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. So what do we know then about what's happening to people? I would imagine it's it's quite a depressing thing right now to be a resident of a long-term care home. Absolutely, because I think, you know, long-term care homes and retirement homes have really been the epicenter of the pandemic um, in so many provinces. This is where we've actually seen the vast majority of our cases and deaths that have actually been occurring um, so far during the pandemic. And it's where actually 16 staff members have also died as well. So you can imagine that, first of all, many residents who move into these places, especially when um, they're in the last few years of their lives, the last thing they want to have is be in fear of dying and number two be restricted from one of the last joys that one can have is being able to visit with family members and friends and what does that do to someone i mean the elderly people that i know you know if you go downhill it can be a slippery slope like it's hard to stop that slide Absolutely. I mean, all of us, you know, during this pandemic have actually experienced what it's like to not be able to go and, you know, regularly hang out uh, with our family members and friends. We've all felt that and we know what loneliness starts to feel like. We know what social isolation feels like. Now imagine you're in a building, for example, and you're being told that, sorry, um, the most you're going to be able to see your daughter or your son or your grandchildren is maybe once a week, you know, for 30 minutes at most. Uh, mm-hmm. We have to remember that for many folks living in long-term care homes uh, and retirement homes across the country, it's over 425,000 people. Um, you know, we've often had situations uh, where people are visiting their loved ones multiple times a day. Sometimes what we call providing not only just social support, but also actually providing essential care. And that's why we call them essential caregivers when family members or friends are going in and literally feeding their loved ones, um, actually going and helping out with their personal care, or providing really important social support that can be helpful when someone has dementia, for example, and might be very, very particular about who interacts with them and who they will trust to work with them. And that's why we've really been keen to make sure that we find the right balance between you know, protecting people in these environments and not completely cutting them off um, to a source of support that really impacts their health and well-being. Yeah. Is there a way to start doing things like right now that might help? Is there a way to kind of bring them back? Absolutely. So, you know, back in March, I think myself and everybody else was in agreement when we said, well, you know, we don't know how this virus spreads. Uh, You know, the safest thing we can do is try and limit the foot traffic going into these homes. And that really meant uh, visitor restrictions, you know, really just saying that we're not allowing any visitors into these homes back in March. Uh, By the spring, we started realizing we could start seeing the devastating effects we saw uh, 
when people couldn't actually see their loved ones, uh, that uh, they were becoming increasingly depressed and lonely. Um, and this is where we saw the rates of antidepressant or antipsychotic prescriptions skyrocketing in these environments. And then we saw other countries like the Netherlands back as early as May do a national study where they actually realized that if you treat family caregivers who obviously don't want to go in and kill granny, they want to go and visit granny safely, for example, um, if you show them how to use uh, personal protective equipment, you teach them in infection prevention control policies, um, they're very much likely to be able to understand and follow those. And what they saw in the Netherlands was it didn't cause any outbreaks. Therefore, they actually loosened restrictions. Quebec did so as well, frankly. Mm -hmm because thousands of workers just left the system. And the government, I would say cynically, welcomed family caregivers in because without them, who'd provide the care? So in July, our National Institute on Aging, we actually published guidance called Finding the Right Balance. And this is where we talked about how you could welcome both what we call general visitors, but also essential family caregivers back in. Ontario and Prince Edward Island, a number of provinces followed that guidance. But BC has really still kept a tight lid on this and really also said they'll leave it up to the homes to figure out what they want to do. So you've had homes which have actually really not even followed the provincial guidance in BC, which has been devastating because family members yeah. are still locked out and residents are locked in. Do you think family members need more help in kind of organizing and lobbying, right? Because there isn't one organization that speaks for the family members of the people who are in long-term care homes. So it's hard to, you know, listen, hard for them to, I guess, get the attention of the people in charge. Absolutely. Like in, in Ontario, for example, we fund provincially what we call resident councils and a, and a provincial association. We also do that for family councils uh, as well. BC, as I understand, doesn't have a provincial family councils yeah. organization to advocate for them. But they do have Isabel McKenzie. You have an incredible seniors advocate who did a study of 13,000 residents and family members showed as well that antipsychotic and anti, you know, antipsychotic prescriptions, she actually helped develop our national guidelines as well. Um, in fact, many people from BC, including the BC care providers, did. And again, we've been able to show that the evidence from around the world, we have not seen a single report yet of a family member or friend who's actually caused an outbreak, you know, since these restrictions were put in place. And, and, and mainly because the last thing anybody wants to do is go in, you know, with a sniffle and, and hurt their loved one. This is, they're not necessarily yeah. the source of this. Um, and therefore, we have to find a better balance, especially in BC, which has gotten so many things right, frankly, and has been a leader. But in this case is where I've really felt that they've really fallen behind um, and it's causing unnecessary hardship and death. I guess, Dr. Sinna, what I worry about, though, is that once we start vaccinating people and as with human nature, we're going to start thinking about the future and, and leave all that behind because it was the past and we want to not think about it. And then we won't make the changes that are necessary to prevent this from happening again. Absolutely. Right. I mean, we've learned so much during this pandemic on what COVID-19 is, how it acts, how it's different from other other viruses. And we've been able to course correct in so many ways. And I'm just so happy to see that, you know, once we put out guidance, we were able to actually change things for the better in so many provinces. But you're right. You know, if we just keep on this, you know, every day that we keep imposing restrictions that don't need to be there, we have to understand that for a lot of residents of BC care, 
care homes who don't have many years left in front of them, days and months actually matter. And saying, well, you know, maybe we can hang on with these tight restrictions until April or, or earlier until we actually get everyone vaccinated. Well, that is one approach. But the thing mm-hmm. is that people are literally dying of loneliness, depression, you know, and it's yeah. a horrible way to go. And frankly, all of us are going to age one day in BC or anywhere else around the world. And this is the future we can look forward to in a publicly funded system. So if this is what we want, carry on BC. But frankly, I wouldn't put my mom in a home there if this is kind of the way we'd carry on. Dr. Sinha, thank you so much for your time this morning. No, thanks for having me. That's Dr. Samir Sinha, Director of Geriatrics at Sinai Health System and the University Health Network in Toronto. With some wise words there, you wouldn't want to put your family members in the future in a long-term care home either, unless we learn the lessons of 2020, change the system for the better. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, just because it was, you know, Christmas, Boxing Day, all of that, holidays, well, Boxing Day for us anyway, uh, doesn't mean that it was quiet news-wise in the United States. There's lots of drama going on down there. They narrowly avoided a government shutdown, uh, much debate about whether President Trump would sign a COVID-19 relief bill. It really came down to the wire on that one. So let's talk about how all of this unfolded last night. Joining us now is Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Okay, so let's talk about this. Also, something interesting I noticed that one of President Trump's most steadfast supporters, newspaper-wise, is the New York Post, and their front page this morning is telling him to accept the election results and move on. Yeah, look, this is something that is not just coming from the New York Post. It's coming from people with inside the Republican Party. It's coming from within the Republican-held Senate saying to President Trump, look, you had your time to try and fight this. Those fights have failed repeatedly in court, and there simply isn't time for you to continue on. If you want to continue on, try again in four years. But this is now just another nudge to President Trump to say the election is over and you lost. Okay, so let's talk about what happened then over the weekend with this COVID-19 relief bill. After saying he wasn't going to sign it, didn't want it, didn't want it, he signed it. He did sign it. We should point out there's reporting that the president was going to sign this on Christmas Eve and there was uh, supposed to be uh, some kind of spectacle all set up for him and he decided to change his mind uh, at the last minute. Uh, yes, the president did sign this last night and it's good news for the millions upon millions of Americans who are desperate for cash right now. The problem is because the president waited a week to sign this kind of overwhelmingly uh, bipartisan supported bill, uh, that is now a week that is going to be lost once the benefits kick back in. Americans will not get that seven days uh, of cash back even when they come back retroactively. So the president did sign it, but in doing so, he really did hurt the Americans who need the money most. Okay, and so what happens next now? I understand the date, like January 6th, is really significant. January 6th is significant because that is when Congress is going to certify the results of the Electoral College, which is ultimately going to put an end to President Trump's fight to try and overturn the election. Now, that's not going to stop the noise in Washington. There's a massive rally, kind of anti-Biden, pro-Trump rally that's expected to take over the streets of the city, uh, you know, calling for Congress to overturn the results. It's simply not possible. The Constitution says that Congress is going to certify what these results are. They could lead themselves into debate by people of objecting to it. But because there is a majority of Democrats in the House, they are the ones who are going to certify this. And Joe Biden is going to be inaugurated. Okay, as that that will be a very interesting, I'm sure couple of days there. How would you describe the mood of what you're hearing in regards to President Trump these days? 
Well, look, there's growing uh, frustration, obviously, within the Democratic Party for the president to simply just accept the results and move on. And within the Republican Party as well, there is a growing push to have President Trump ignore the fact that Joe Biden is coming into the presidency on uh, January 20th and instead go out with a bang by, uh, you know, not doing anything that's going to potentially stain or tarnish what is left of his administration. Uh, And that was what the call was before Christmas by having him sign this relief bill because it would give the president president kind of that last hurrah amongst his party and his base to say, look at what I did for you. But instead, the president continues to push this narrative that he lost this election because of fraud, which simply doesn't exist. Uh, and it really is creating uh, a broken and fractured Republican Party who are trying to move on, but also trying to appease the man that they understand could control their political futures. Right. And now we've got the January 5th as a big day as well, right? Because isn't that the day of the election in Georgia? Yes, there's a runoff election in Georgia January 5th. That's obviously where the eyes of the Republican Party are right now. This is a crucial election for them. If they lose both of those seats, Democrats, you know, will ultimately control all branches of government and easily pass through anything from the Biden-Harris agenda. So there's a kind of an enormous push here by President Trump and by Mitch McConnell to ensure uh, that these two Republicans retain their seats. It's going to be close. It is looking like Republicans may end up uh, uh, taking both both seats back uh, and and kind of keeping that majority out of reach for the Democrats. But this is going to be a big, crucial moment for the U.S. You know, an election one day, the certification the next day, all mixed in with protests. Oh, boy. All right. You're in for an interesting uh, couple of weeks. And Reggie, thank you. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. That front page of the New York Post is a bigger deal than you might think. This is a paper that has a very reliably been one of the most pro-Trump, uh, you know, papers and media outlets in the United States. But their editorial, huge front page, you know, headline on this where it says, Mr. President, stop the insanity. You've lost the election. Here's how to save your legacy. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, did the flaws in our public health system here in Canada leave us more vulnerable to the COVID-19 pandemic? That is the issue that is kind of unpacked in a great piece in the Globe and Mail newspaper over the weekend. Joining us now is the person who wrote it, Grant Robertson, Globe and Mail journalist. Grant, thank you for being here. Thank you. Good morning. Let's talk about the premise of the piece here. Where do you think Canada could have done better? Well, the most important uh, piece of it, I think, is the question of could we have had better intelligence um, in the weeks and even months leading up to the pandemic? And that seems to be where the big gap uh, is that we uncovered in, in, in our article, in that in past outbreaks over the past 25 years, Canada had a, had a really good system of watching for outbreaks, and it worked with the WHO and actually fed a lot of information to the WHO, looking for signs of trouble around the world. Very effective during SARS, very effective during H1N1, and it, it, it was great at detecting problems with Ebola and, and Zika even. And that function really eroded and almost vanished uh, before this pandemic. Where did it go wrong then? Like, when did that start to happen? It started to happen over the past three or four years, but really around 2018, the government uh, inside the the Department of Public Health 
started to look at its system and thought, well, this is too international focused. Um, you know, in governments, there's always pressure to use uh, resources elsewhere. And so they looked at it and said, well, you know, we could use this, this capacity for, for domestic uh, health issues. Um, they actually reallocated resources in one case to, uh, you know, tracking uh, things like the spread of syphilis within Canada and other things that didn't involve pandemic detection. Um, and what they did is they pulled resources away from pandemic detection uh, towards more domestic things. And so around 2018, they started to shut down some of the capacity, uh, which really, it, it appears it affected our ability to gather intelligence in advance of this outbreak. And what's so scary about that, Grant, is that you're talking like a year and a half difference, right? From 2018 to, towards the end of 2019, when they start to realize there might be a problem, uh, that we couldn't, we, we lost some valuable time there. Exactly. And, and what epidemiologists have told us is time is everything in, in, in an outbreak. If you can mobilize uh, certain f- uh, functions days or weeks um, you know, faster, uh, or even throughout, it's, it's not even the, the first moment that the outbreak is known. It's after it's known even, and, and you can gather intelligence and it can inform your decisions faster throughout and make those decisions with more urgency, that can have a great impact on how the outbreak goes in, in numbers of cases and deaths and how it spreads. Uh, it, it's really about injecting urgency into the system. Have we tried to build that back now since the pandemic started, and how has that gone? From what we can tell, they've tried to you know, rev up the system they've had. But it, people inside the department have, have told us, you know, it's, it's been constrained um, because it didn't have the capacity that it once did. Um, I think what we're going to see coming out of this is, um, is either the existing system built back or, or the government looking at reinstating this capacity because it did work in the past. Uh, we're already seeing the Auditor General has launched an investigation into this matter, and uh, the Health Minister has launched an internal review into the decisions that were made inside the department by various management uh, uh, functions yeah. uh, as into what went wrong. So is there, do you think, an acknowledgement that, hey, we made a mistake here? I think we're starting to see that, yes. Uh, I think... I think it's going to be interesting to see what comes out in the months ahead. You know, the government has said, you know, there will be a time for reflection on the pandemic, what worked and what didn't. And with this one, I think they're already looking at it. And, and, and you know, the, these two investigations, I think that's a sign that they acknowledge uh, perhaps that this was a weak point for Canada. Right. You know, it's so frustrating to hear all that, right? Because you think, what, what did we miss? What was wasted? Like, what, what opportunities do you think we missed then with that situation? Well, that's exactly it. It's, it's a missed opportunity. Um, people have asked me in, in, with these articles, well, you know, what would be different had, had this early warning system been working at full capacity? It's a difficult question to ask because mm-hmm. we don't actually know. You don't... There's a saying, you don't know the information that you didn't have. We can look back at past situations and what some of the experts and scientists working inside Canada and outside Canada at the WHO told us about how effective it was at giving you a head start at addressing problems that pop up. So you can sort of see what it would have done in the past. Um, With this one, it's the question of, 
would we have liked to known earlier and would we have liked to maybe had uh, more urgency into in our decisions and that's what it would have done it's what it was mm-hmm. set up to do and we, we don't know the impact but it, virtually everybody says this would have had uh, a an impact somehow all right great piece though grant thank you so much for your time Thanks so much. That's Grant Robertson. He's a journalist with the Globe and Mail newspaper, and you can find this piece online, actually, at the Globe and Mail's uh, website. But essentially, they took a look at flaws in the public health system in our you know, federal system, and essentially whether or not the kind of standing down that they did starting in 2018 impacted our response to this pandemic, and potentially it left us more vulnerable than we could have been. So what could we have done better? Check out his piece online. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about what's been going on in Point Roberts for 2020. Not a great situation there. The residents of Point Roberts have felt very trapped. They couldn't transit through, uh, you know, BC to get to the border. Very limited options there. It's been an ongoing discussion, one that we have had many times here on the show. But now the Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce, or more specifically its president, is talking about something that might help. It's a bit of an unusual idea. So joining us now is Brian Calder, uh, the president of the Chamber of Commerce there. Good morning, Brian. Morning, Timmy. How are you? I am good, thank you. How are things in Point Roberts? Isolated ghost town is what we're situated here. Uh, We're locked down. Fortunately, half of us are dual citizens, both Canadian and U.S., So we have a little more latitude, but not a heck of a lot. But we can go from here to Bellingham to see the doctor, dentist, or vet, or whatever. Uh, Whereas American citizens only can't. Uh, They have to go out by plane or boat. Okay, and you've got a suggestion that you think might help this situation. Well, when we get under new management in Washington, perhaps we can get a little attention paid here. But being now like 900 people... And our management in Bellingham is 240,000 they manage in Bellingham. And, and so our management here, our governance, let's call it, is 50 miles away and two international borders. It's like going from Delta to Abbotsford. Uh, that's where our management. So being small population and difficult to get in and out of, mm-hmm. we don't get paid a lot of attention at all by our local management. So it needs something both state and federal in order to deal with the border, because even if they tried to, the local Bellingham offices of management couldn't, wouldn't have that much of an effect. Right. It's got to be a federal decision. Okay. But point, yeah, and Point Roberts, basically, back to your point, is, no pun intended, but uh, is to turn this place into something like the Peace Arch, which was formed in uh, basically 1815 under the Ghent uh, Treaty between Great Britain and the United States. And it hasn't been looked at in the following 200 years, and I think it it warrants looking at it being an absolutely unique situation in all of North America. Point Roberts is an absolutely, totally unique situation in all of North America. Now, your suggestion here is to move the border. Now, how the border crossing, we should say. How would that work? Yes, well... Visualize the Peace Arch, and you see the Canadian border, and then many thousand feet away, to the south, is the U.S. border. Uh, 
if you did the same thing in Point Roberts, in my submission, you would leave the Canadian border where it is in Point Roberts Delta right now mm-hmm. and move the U.S. border to the marina, which is our south shore. As you know, we're surrounded three sides by water and the Delta border. And in that zone of the five square miles of Point Roberts, you'd have an area similar to the Peace Arch where U.S. and Canadian citizens can co-mingle and not have to clear immigration unless they cross the other border. Right. So someone, someone from Vancouver or Delta could come into Point Roberts, and as long as they didn't take their boat out uh, of the marina, in other words, cross that new line, mm-hmm. then they wouldn't have to declare immigration and do all of that interrogation stuff. Right. But Brian, most uh, I think most people go down to Point Roberts, and I know because I used to live in South Delta, is to get some gas, pick up a few groceries, some milk or whatever. How would that work? How could you have businesses operating in this kind of no-go zone? Well, I, I think they'd still be under U.S. jurisdiction and U.S. law vis-a-vis sales tax uh, remittances uh, and uh, like property tax, etc. All of that would stay the same. The U.S. citizenship would stay the same. In other words, the ones that are strictly U.S. citizens here now would maintain that and, and report to right. tax-wise to the U.S. government as they do now. Duels like me would still pay to the U.S. government, which I do now. Uh, in fact, I pay to both. <laughs> right. uh, and uh, I think that basically it's just it's just to cover an immigration issue. It's not to co- govern mm-hmm. the business side of it. Business side of it would stay the same. They'd still okay. pay the taxes to the U.S., etc. Interesting idea. Brian, thanks for explaining it to us this morning. Thank you very much for your support and the plight of the point. Yeah, we are thinking about you guys. That's Brian Calder, president of the Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce, uh, talking about his, their idea to kind of help the Point Roberts situation by moving the physical border crossing. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about a story in the news over the last 24 hours or so. It is that first case of the COVID-19 variant that had been discovered in the UK has been found in British Columbia. Ontario is reporting three cases as well in total. So we wanted to know how infectious is this new strain? Uh, is it impacted by the different vaccines that are now available? So joining us now to talk more about all of this is infectious disease expert and host of the Super Awesome Science Show podcast, Jason Tetro. Hi, Jason. Hello there. I guess you have been reading up on this all weekend long because for you in 2020, the news doesn't stop, does it? (laughs) No, Uh, but you have to realize something. Uh, Viruses, whether it be SARS-CoV-2 or influenza or um, HIV, they all mutate. They all have these lineages, these variants. Um, And so when I heard about this variant that came out in the UK, I kind of scratched my head going, um, okay, sure, there's a variant, yay. Um, And the thing is, is most variants will mutate in a way that makes them better inside the host of that they're currently in. So, you know, they they may have come from bats or pangolins or whatever, and now they're in humans. And so they're going to mutate or adapt, as we prefer to call it, so that they replicate better and they transmit better. So none of this is really 
intriguing to, from from a virological perspective. It's just sort of what we were all expecting. Right. And when you say better, though, you mean not better for us, but better for the virus. Like it is becoming oh, yeah. more efficient and better at what it is doing, which is wreaking havoc. Well, yes. I mean, the virus doesn't know that it's wreaking havoc. Though. Yes. You have to realize that. All it wants to do is replicate and, and, and find new places to find home. Um, so from that perspective, it's it's not like there's any kind of, um, you know, ill will or malice going on here. Uh, these mutations happen as a result of something called uh, fidelity uh, within the ability of the virus to replicate itself. And believe it or not, humans have the same mutational capacity. It's just that ours is very, very low in comparison to a virus, primarily because we have so right. much DNA versus what they have in their RNA. So we've been doing this all along, though, haven't we? That is tracking the virus for mutations. And this isn't the first time that we've noticed a variant. Oh, no, not at all. I mean, the 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 virus that's here in Canada uh, is known as lineage B.1.1.121. Uh, I mean, the, the, the fact of the matter is that there are numerous different lineages or changes that have occurred, and those variations have occurred basically since we first saw the virus in Wuhan in China. Um, the reason that it's become a little bit more interesting is because the mutations are happening in an area of that spike protein, that protein everyone's heard about that need mm -hmm. that essentially helps the virus get into our cells. And as a result of that, people have started wondering, well, is this going to change the way that the virus can act in terms of infection? And the answer is yes. And also resistance to treatments and vaccines. And it seems like the answer for that, thankfully, is no. Okay, so the vaccines, is, from what we can see, are still effective against this variant. Yeah, and the reason is that the vaccine, whether it be Pfizer, Moderna, uh, AstraZeneca, or Johnson Johnson, is using the whole spike protein. Now, it's a huge, huge molecule, and so as a result of that, it gives the immune system a lot to work with in terms of developing a memory. So initially, and believe it or not, Pfizer actually had a version 1.0 that was only focused on the what we call receptor binding domain, or RBD, and that wasn't very effective. So they went to that long uh whole protein version 2.0 and it worked like a charm. Um, so the reason that we're not worried about this variant is because it's just one spot within this larger context of a molecule that is the spike protein. So um, there should be no problem. We might lose a couple percentages of effectiveness, sure. But I mean, when you start at 95%, <laughs> you yeah. know, coming down a few ain't all that bad. Right. But I guess we are concerned here because this now it, this variant shows that it spreads faster. And we're kind of in a race here, right? We're like, we want to get enough people vaccinated so we can slow down the spread. And now we found something that spread even faster. Yeah, I, I just have to say something. It's still the same virus. So the ABCs, airway, breathing, and making sure you know your contacts, that hasn't changed. And it is a preventable virus. So whether or not there's been a change in the receptor binding domain of the um, of the pro of the spike protein of the virus or not, shouldn't stop you from doing what you know you can do to prevent exactly. this from spreading. That's the one thing I don't understand: is why does its ability to transmit fifty to seventy four percent better? going to change the way that you've done everything to make sure that you prevent it in the first place. That's if you're doing everything right that you should be doing. 
Well, and I think that's the big problem that we're facing, right? Is that we have seen lots of people sort of decide that, well, this virus doesn't mean anything to them or they're not going to follow uh, whatever it may be, the masking or the bubbles or anything along those lines. And we've seen over the last four to six months what happens when we have certain groups uh, essentially not following those those guidelines. We saw that in the 20s and 30s. And then over the last few months, we saw that intergenerational dispersion or spread. And we saw it going into the older generation where they do require the hospitalization and unfortunately the ICUs and, and deaths. Right. And so, you know, we know how to prevent this thing, whether we have a vaccine or not. So Jason, this would seem to me good news about this variant then, because sure it's more contagious, but that doesn't it doesn't it's not more deadly, which I think mm-hmm. which is stuck in a lot of people's minds as I recently read a book about the great influenza, right, of the early yeah. part of the twentieth century. And when that mutated, it did become more deadly. Oh yeah. I mean that mutation has become sort of legendary. Um and and when you look at what we're going through right now, um, these mutations, while they are changing a little bit of how the virus interacts with humans, it's nothing like the E627K mutation that happened in the 1918 influenza strain that went from basically zero probability of dying to upwards of um, you know 10 to possibly 20%. Okay, so for now, you think people should just keep calm, keep doing what you're doing, despite all this stuff in the news about the variant? Yeah, I mean, just keep on what you're doing. If you've been able to prevent uh, uh, the the virus from getting inside of you, inside of your bubble, inside of whatever, um, just keep on doing that. We're going to get to the vaccine um, sort of much, much more, um, I, I guess, efficiently as we run into 2021. By around, you know, Valentine's Day, we should be at a point where we're really looking at the end of the pandemic, which should probably end around uh, sometime August, September. And so just keep on doing what you're doing. You know, we've gotten this far. We're past the halfway point. And, you know, let's just get ourselves to the to the finish line. And also, we sequence uh, the genome of all these different variants, Jason. Why do we do that? What, what do we hope to learn? Well, what we're doing is we're essentially finding out whether or not there are any kind of significant mutations or variants that occur that may have, uh, you know, significant effects of the way that the virus um, essentially infects us, the pathogenesis of the virus. But another thing that we want to do is we want to get a very good handle of this virus to understand how it sort of exists in the in the environment. And one of the best ways to do that is look at its genetic code and see how it's been changing. Um, you know, we used to think that coronaviruses, uh, you know, they didn't they didn't mutate that much. They didn't adapt that much. Well, now we're learning that, no, they, they, they do mutate quite a bit. Just thankfully in regions that are not as important when it comes to our health as, say, an influenza virus where it mutates and it all of a sudden renders you know, right. a vaccine from last year almost completely ineffective. Right. Okay, Jason, thank you for explaining it to us this morning. Hey, no problem at all. Have Appreciate a great day. Appreciate that. You too. That's Jason Tetro, infectious disease expert, host of the Super Awesome Science Show podcast, putting all this news about the COVID-19 variant into perspective for us. It's some fascinating stuff. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, some of us may have done our Boxing Day shopping online this year. That's what I did, but not everyone made that choice. 
you must have seen the pictures on social media of the people who flock to shopping centers in places like Richmond and Tawasin. The the shopping mall parking lot at Tawasin Mills was jam-packed. The lineup of cars trying to get to the MacArthur Glen outlet in Richmond, same situation. Huge lineups there at some of the more popular shopping destinations. And then you know, and I'm sure you know of somebody who maybe kind of skirted or broke the rules for those Christmas gatherings and got together with maybe a few people that they know. But what does that mean for our case numbers in the coming weeks? BC has been good the last couple of weeks. Numbers have been going in the right direction. But does this mean that all of that is going to change? Joining us now is SFU professor and the Canada 150 Research Chair in Mathematics for Infection, Evolution and Public Health, Dr. Carolyn Colane. Thanks for being back with us today. Hi, good morning. Dr. Colane, were you concerned when you kind of saw the pictures and saw what was happening over the last four or five days? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a concern. As you say, people are, are shopping, people are getting together. And, you know, we need we need that. And and I think, you know, this, this idea that we don't ever see anyone outside of our own immediate household, that's, you know, completely tenable for a few weeks. And initially it was, you know, a couple of weeks and then a few more weeks. Um, I think it's not practical for a lot of people. But I also think for a lot of other holidays in the fall and like starting with Canada Day, we have seen a rise in transmission, you know, due to the holiday, people had Halloween parties, mm-hmm. people had, you know, there was the Thanksgiving one, there was, of course, outbreaks uh, at, at Canada Day early in the summer. And so you know, I wouldn't be at all surprised if we see that again, and if we see it more so reflecting how important Christmas is, and, and how, um, you know, people's holiday patterns in the past. I understand that for Chris, you know, for a lot of people, Christmas is very important. But is in-person Boxing Day shopping that important? <laughs> right, <laughs> you do wonder. Yeah, um, that's true, and I think it, you know, it follows on the, the importance of Christmas. I guess that there's this gift giving and, and exchange that happens, and there's a consumer burst, and it's important for retail, and it's, I guess, it's important for people as individuals. Um, so, so I do think it's worrying. I hope that you know, in malls. Even if they were busy to get in, I, I remember in you know when I did go to Metrotown way back in the summer, there were lines outside of shops. People were distanced, and I hope that it was it was like that inside, um, and that people were quiet and wearing masks because that does help. Um, but I think you know any of these things are are small risks yeah. for transmission. But if you have millions of small risks, you, you do have some risk. Exactly. So what are you going to be looking at, kind of numbers wise, and paying attention to in the next few weeks? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I think we'll see increases in numbers. Uh, I don't think we'll continue to see sustained decreases, but hopefully this burst of activity is a one-off and we will be able to go back. You know, we know now that British Columbians, when asked to do this, even if we don't do it perfectly, most of us follow the guidelines most of the time. And we all know people, as you said, who got together with a few others. Um, if, even if that's true, we've mostly been in decline since early November and we can keep doing this. I would worry a little bit, of course, about the burst in transmission following this burst in contact, but also about fatigue and people, you know, not being able to sustain this level of distancing for six months. And so I think we need to establish something else, something with wider testing, asymptomatic screening, smell testing, maybe home testing, maybe where we can support a higher level of reopening than we can with our current testing symptomatics and contact tracing, because that's limited. And that's why we have to keep doing these distancing measures. Do you think, is this complacency or is this just people saying, I just can't do it anymore? 
yeah, I don't know. It's probably different for different people. Um, I imagine for some people, it's it's complacency. You know, we've, it's been yeah. a long time for the pandemic. Most of us in BC still don't know a lot of people with COVID um, or who've had COVID and been severely affected by it. Some of us do, you know, who are international people or the occasional in BC. But I think that lack of direct experience uh, is, is a bit part of it. Um, and I also think fatigue is part of it because we've the way we've done this here, we've placed by far the majority of the burden on people's individual social lives and individual choices. Yeah. And that's really empowering, but it's also a bit vulnerable because individuals can change those choices quite easily. Is there another way to approach it, do you think, than, than rather than empowering the individuals like that? But, I mean, I think it's great to, to empower individual. And of course, it, you know, fundamentally, this is an infectious disease that can spread when people don't have symptoms. So there's not a lot else we can do. But I do think we should be looking at home testing. I think we should be looking at massive testing and rapid testing and supporting being able to act on those tests. Because now the technology is there. There's new data about the smell test. There's also, I think we have a new understanding about how much distancing we're going to need to do to Mm -hmm. use only symptomatic testing and contact tracing. And it's a lot. And so that means we, we should be looking to you know, the film industry is doing it. Colleges in the U.S. are doing it. Some places are piloting it. And we're piloting it a little bit, but we've been a bit um, reticent to scale up the testing in Canada generally. We didn't kind of take the summer and say, okay, we know what we're going to need. We're going to need massive, massive abilities to screen and to reduce importation so that we can maintain things in a much more open way. We just sort of kept on with, let's roll out another massive distancing measure when things get... Yeah, bad. and I think there was some wishful thinking there. So, so I think hopefully we can take January and take stock and really plan for the next eight months, and and hopefully plan in a way that doesn't rely on people just not ever seeing anyone they don't live with. Yeah, hopefully. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That is Dr. Carolyn Colane, who's the SFU professor in mathematics for infection evolution and public health. This is mornings with Simi. Okay, on this post-Christmas Monday, let's talk about a good news story. I love ones like this. It's pretty inspiring. So to tell us all about it, joining us now is Nelson Mendonca, who's the founder of a knitting group with the Phoenix Society. Good morning, Nelson. Uh, Good morning, Simi. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Can you tell us a bit about the Phoenix Society? What is it? Uh, The Phoenix Society is um, a place where it deals with addiction, um, helps with homelessness. Um, it's where people come to deal with uh, issues with drugs and alcohol. And uh, it's a treatment facility mm-hmm. where you enter a 90-day program. And uh, when you complete the 90 days, there's a possibility of staying and moving into transitional housing here, or they will help you uh, find a place to move on to and uh, um, help you with school, work, all that kind of stuff. So Right. You chose to stay. Uh, yeah, I, I did an application and I was approved to stay. Okay. And tell me, how did you come to Phoenix? What addictions, what issues brought you there? Um, I My issue was drugs. Um, I spent a lot of time incarcerated. Um, I was incarcerated just before I came to Phoenix. Um, and then I was, once I dealt with all my charges, um, I came to Phoenix and entered their... Uh, 90-day program, um, and just kind of went from there. 
Right. But Nelson, you're now known for something very different from that because somewhere along the way you learned how to crochet. I, I learned how to loom. Uh, like I've never picked up knitting needles. I don't know how to knit. Uh, looming is, is um, a form of knitting, I think. Um, it's all kind of <laughs> new to us. Um, and I actually learned it while I was in, incarcerated. Um, we were making toques for uh, homeless people last Christmas, and uh, and I made a couple toques while I was in there. And then when I got to Phoenix, I just I don't know what it was. I just had really bad bad anxiety just from mm-hmm. being released, and uh, I didn't know anybody here. And it's just kind of the only thing I remembered. <laughs> and I just went and bought some uh, yarn and a loom and just started making a toque um, for myself or for my family. And uh, before I know it, everybody was asking me what I was doing. They wanted to learn, and and it just kind of just went from there. Yeah, you've got a group now, right, of people at Phoenix who do this with you. <clears throat> Yeah, my my old treatment floor, I finished the 90 days. Um, it just kind of got passed on to the next guy, to the next guy. If it wasn't for uh, uh, these restrictions here, because we're isolated to each floor, because right. um, there's four or five pl- floors here, and there's way more people that would want to get involved. It's just, it's hard to um, get everybody connected and stuff. But we have a, a pretty odd group of guys <laughs> knitting tubes right now. So. Okay, but how many have you knit? Because I know you've been passing them out and giving them away as well to homeless people, right? Um, we had a big pile going. A lot of the guys were sending them home to their family for Christmas. Uh, we sent quite a few to uh, a woman's recovery center. Um, we sent a huge box out to uh, Abbotsford that were donated to the homeless. Um, we have like 30 infant tubes that we're saving once these uh, COVID times are over, we can donate them to the hospital. Um, we just give them to friends, staff, uh, people right. around here and stuff. So, What do you get out of it, Nelson? Like, obviously, it, it, it fills something in you, right? That it helps soothe you somehow. What do you think that is? Honestly, I think it just kind of, like, grounds me a little bit and uh, keeps, yeah, like I say this all the time, it's, the, it's one of the few things um, I can't manipulate uh cut corners find the loophole or uh i just have to follow each peg one at a time and it's kind of just that routine of of doing the same thing over and over and over again and getting the same result every time right you can't and, cut uh, corners yeah and i've not been the best person in my past of starting things or following through on things and finishing things so just to start it to finish it and give it away it's um it's very therapeutic it's very grounding it's very um just it's turned me into a big softy and uh <laughs> <Does it? laughs> yeah it's turned a bunch of us into a big softies and to be to be completely honest i prefer being a big softy and uh <laughs> you've hit the someone, big time nelson i mean you, i saw you on cnn yes they actually posted uh something on cnn yesterday and uh we raised. They, we had five thousand dollars donated just in one day of being on CNN yesterday. And so, what is that? Where does that money go? What is it for? Uh, we're going to buy more supplies, more looms, more yarn, um, and just try and uh, get as many as many tubes to people as we can before uh, the warm weather comes. Did you ever think, Nelson, that this is something that you would be known for? Absolutely not. Um, I. When I was knitting a toque here for the first time, um, 
once I did it in public, I kind of knew things, it's things in my life were going to be different because I wasn't ashamed to do things and I didn't have guilt and I wasn't too worried what everybody was thinking about right. me or being judged. And it was kind of super freeing to just do that. And, um, it's kind of just talking about it all the time, being incarcerated and, and, and turning to knitting with yeah. these guys. Is, and you're like, yeah, super- deal with it. I'm a knitter. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, and, and it's kind of helped a lot of the guys too, um, because we're not sitting around talking about all the negative stuff in our past or, or all the horrible things we might've done or in our addiction and stuff. It's just, we're sitting around talking about doing good and, and making toques for kids and for infants and for their family and trying to figure out new styles and stuff. (laughs) I love it. Have you thought about taking the next step then? Maybe like, yes, learning how to do two needles, use do knitting or crocheting. Um, We have many, many ideas um, going right now. We're, we're branching out into scarves right now. Oh. Um, we have a, a loom for socks. We're going to try socks here pretty soon. Um, who knows? Uh, the guys come up with some great ideas and stuff. So we finally just mastered the art of a pom-pom. So I love it. Yeah. So we got big pom-poms, small pom-poms, medium pom-poms. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you ever need any help uh, with that or we can assist you in any way, Nelson, you let us know, okay? Okay, no problem. Thank you so much for telling us your story. We appreciate that. Thank you so much for having us. That's Nelson Mendonca. He is the founder of this knitting and looming group that they are connected to the Phoenix Society. It is um, over, uh, it's in, in, the, in BC here. And what they're doing is they are looming and knitting their way through their anxiety and their issues. And they've all had substance abuse problems in the past, but they found, as Nelson said, they just are soothed by the process. And come on, who among us don't, doesn't have a hobby like that, especially during the pandemic, right? I mean, I bake like crazy. I stress bake. I do that to help ease my anxiety. So I think that is just amazing that they have been able to do this. And I absolutely love that story. You can find out more by checking out the Phoenix Society online.